room. We've got two readings, so we're going to have to be on it. The first reading is from Amos 5, so that's page 872 in the Green Bibles. So keep a, keep a thumb there. And the second reading is from Isaiah 58, which is page 707. But I'm going to kick us off in Amos. Amos 5, verse 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, like a never-failing stream. And then Isaiah 58, verse 9 to verse 12. So this is page 707. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Amen. Thank you. Um, so it's quite a punchy message this evening, guys, so stay with me. Um, so we've been looking um, through this kind of series at God's heart for the poor, and we took a break last week with Michael Lloyd. How good was Michael Lloyd? Who was here for that? It was wonderful, wasn't it? It was brilliant. Um, but we're um, coming into land with um, this series on God's heart for the poor. Um, so this evening we're going to look at the Old Testament, and then Tim's going to land it next week in the New Testament. And a few weeks ago we kind of started by setting a sort of theological and scriptural framework. And then um, Francesca came and she spoke to us about unconscious bias and um, just opening our eyes to the world around us. And then a couple of weeks ago, Tim offered us this uh, spiritual health check, what was going on in our hearts as we respond to um, this message. Um, and this evening, what we're going to do is trace a subtle but very deep and very clear thread that runs through scripture of God's heart for worship and how it's outworked in justice and righteousness. So let's pray and then we'll kick off. Father, we thank you that you are all that is good and true. And Father, we thank you that you invest in each and every one of us. And we pray this evening that we will be convicted where we need to be convicted. We will be excited where we need to be excited. And we'll be hopeful and joyful where we need to be hopeful and joyful. And all for the sake of your world, Lord God. Amen. 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 So um, just to kind of rehearse the theological uh, scriptural basis that we're coming from, um, we've been saying that it all began, of course, in Genesis 1 and 2, where we were created in the image of the triune God, who's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And created in his image, we were created for worship and intimacy with him. As you read the pages of Genesis 1 and 2, it's humankind, perfect relationship, perfectly intimate with God, with the Father, with the word that dwells there, with the Ruach of God 
God, the Spirit of God, who is hovering over the waters, creating all things. And of course, our mandate was one of justice, one of stewardship. God created us, humankind, to steward over the world well. And of course, if you've been around church for a while, you'll know that Genesis 3, the fall, that moment of complete disconnection between humankind and God. And we know that all poverty, all poverty in all its various forms comes from that Genesis 3 reality of the fall. But of course, God is a God of hope and restoration, so he doesn't leave us there. Actually, he steps right in and he begins his rescue plan, kind of firstly through the covenant in the Old Testament, and then for us as the church, through the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within each and every one of us. But scripture also gives us a vision of where we're going to. And so as you press into Revelation, Revelation 7, 9, shows us that one day all will be put right. Justice, perfect justice, perfect harmony will roll like a mighty river and every tribe and tongue and nation will be caught up in the adoration of God. But we find ourselves now, and Israel found themselves, in this kind of in-between period between the trees almost, the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil that was found in Genesis 1 and 2, and the tree of the new creation. And the Lord is beckoning each of us. He's beckoning us as church to again and again be his hands and feet to a hurting and broken world, to worship him fully through the outworking of justice and righteousness in our lives. So we turn to... Um, to the Old Testament prophets. And let's just take a moment to step into uh, Israel's history to orientate ourselves. Um, I'm a historian by trade, so I love a few dates and facts. Um, and we find um, Amos and Micah, who we'll look at um, in a moment, way back in the 10th to sort of the 7th century BC. And we find there that Israel is this nation that's doing quite well. They're really conscious that they're the people of God, that they've been called by name, that the Lord has given them the land. He has said to them, I've made a covenant with you. He's given them the temple and he's given them um, a king. And their nation seemingly is doing well. So that's the 10th to the 7th century. Um, in about the 9th century, Israel actually splits in two. So you end up with Israel in the north, which is uh, what sort of Amos is prophesying to, and um, Judah in the south, which is where Micah is prophesying to. But to all intents and purposes, they're kind of one nation um, split into, so Israel north, Judah at the south. And they've got some great kings, David, Solomon, towards the end before the exile, Hezekiah, Josiah, but they've got lots of increasingly bad kings. And in the eighth century, the early prophets rise up and they've got this message of calamity and impending doom and conviction. Israel don't take much notice. And then in 722, the Assyrians, who are a huge empire surrounding Israel, they come into the northern kingdom of Israel and they destroy everything. And so a few refugees escape south to Judah and that becomes the nation of Israel, Judah, with Jerusalem at its center. And then in 597, ultimate calamity comes as the Babylonians, who are another huge empire uh, surrounding Judah, step in and they carry the Israelites off into exile and they destroy the temple and the land is taken. 
But God, of course, doesn't leave them there. In 539, God calls his people back to the land, and the Israelites begin to return from exile. And that's where we pick up the message of the prophets, Isaiah 56 onwards, Isaiah 58 that Max read. That is speaking into the post-exilic situation. It's a message of hope and restoration. And so although the two messages are different, Micah and um, Amos, pre-exile, Isaiah and others, post-exile, the train is the same. It's a message of worship through justice and righteousness. A message that says to the Israelites, this is what you're made for. You're made to worship the living God. You were made for Genesis 1 and 2 realities. And you are my people. And I call you to walk out that reality on this earth. And actually it's a message for us. Because we're his people. We're the church. We're the ones who have been called by name. So let's turn to um, Amos if you want to flick over to that in your Bibles. What's going on in the time of Amos? Well, we said that um, Israel's nation's doing pretty well. And the ruling elite of Israel, they're really kind of comfortable. They're very aware of their privileged status um, as the people of God. And worship is absolutely central to the life of Israel. They're really good at their church going, their synagogue going. They're really, really good at worship. And they bring the best of what they have before the Lord. They've got an Old Testament sacrificial system, so there's festivals and fasting and burnt offerings and animals and grain offerings. And when they bring their offerings to the Lord, it's the best of what they've got. They don't bring kind of long grain rice, they bring risotto rice. <laughs> there we go, nice, thank you. Um, their guitar is a grain offering. They bring it before the Lord. They take their church going seriously. They worship in one sense with all that they've got. But into this, what do the prophets declare? Amos, I hate and despise your religious festivals. This is the Lord speaking through Amos. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, or have no regard for them, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Micah puts it differently. In a section where the Lord just says, Israel, you've got it wrong. I'm not convinced by your worship. Then the Lord says through Micah, he, I, have shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what's going on? Israel worship so well. And yet the prophet's response, the Lord's response is it's a stench. You've got it wrong. And it's because their worship is elaborate, but it's not translated into action. So not only are some of the Israelites worshipping other gods, which of course is against um, the Lord's command to have no God but him, 
But actually, Israel is a nation that is doing well at the expense of the poor. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And as you turn to, um, to the minor prophets, you'll just see this refrain again and again, widows and orphans, widows and orphans, widows and orphans, and it means the poor. Israel is rife with injustice. And so the Lord says, despite all your church going, despite all your worship, it's a stench. Because the Israelites have not only forgotten their heart, they've forgotten God's heart in so doing. They've forgotten what they were created for. They've forgotten that they were called to love mercy and act justly and walk humbly with God. They've forgotten that the privilege of being the people of God, of the dignity of inclusion that that is, means they're called to justice and they're called to a better way. So what do the prophets speak into this? Well, firstly, it's what we kind of really obviously see. The strongest possible terms, a stench, says Amos. But also, they move to highlight the character of God, who God is. And they use Israel's worship songs. They use the Psalms. And this refrain of justice and righteousness comes again and again and again. So you just open up the Psalms. It's right there. This is the character of our God. Psalm 33, 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 37, 6. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. The foundation of who the Lord is, the heart of his character, is righteousness and his justice. And so Amos grabs hold of this and he reworks it and he says, away with it all, your songs, your music, your harps, your guitars, your risotto rice. Instead, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. And then they warn that this coming calamity, this 722 invasion, this sixth century um, removal to exile, that that is coming. Because the claim of the day is that we're secure, we're privileged, we're the people of God, and our status as the people of God brings security. What's going to happen to us that's bad? God's on our side. But what the prophets are saying is that actually privilege brings peril. You are the people of God. You should know better. You've got a responsibility to bear. And so without getting too somber, I think that's a message sometimes we need to know as church. We're the people of God. We've got a responsibility to bear. A guy called um, David Rees, he's a sort of old school worship leader. Me and Meigs were talking about him, actually. He wrote some brilliant songs in the 90s. Um, and he's American and extraordinary. And he has a real heart for worship but a real heart for justice. And he just writes this, which in one sense sums up the prophet's message. He says, where there is no justice, there is no worship. 
where there is no justice, there is no worship. Because justice is the fragrance of worship. That's what we're really doing when we come in song. That's what we're really doing when we come before the Lord. We're allowing his heart to break our hearts with the things that break his. And so Israel are taken off into exile. But before we get too depressed, there is so much hope in who God is. And so of course God restores them. 537, they're back in the land. But the Lord's heart and the Lord's mandate does not change. So let's turn to Isaiah 58. Actually, I'm going to bop back into um, verse 6. So Isaiah 58, 6 to uh, 12. Is not this the kind of fasting, the kind of worship I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness, again righteousness, justice, that company, will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. Then you will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always and he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people, us, will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. What a vision. What a vision. And that's our vision. That's our mandate. Because if that was the vision for the people of Israel, how much more is that our vision, our mandate? We are New Testament, new creation people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our God has called each and every one of us by name. We approach God as sons and daughters. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul just writes, we approach with unveiled faces, unlike the Israelites who could barely go into the Holy of Holies because the intimacy that had been lost in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 had not been fully restored. When Christ comes and dies on the cross, Matthew 26, and cries out, it is finished, the veil is torn in the temple. And a perfect way is made to the Father, and we are beckoned in. And then on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within every believer. It's extraordinary. It's one of the greatest mysteries of faith. The living God lives inside each and every one of us. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. How much more are we called to be? Repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Romans 12, and Paul puts it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And so right now, guys, we're the risotto rice. We're the guitar. We're the living act of worship. And the thing about a living sacrifice is that it's got free will and it can crawl off the altar. So God's not going to make us do anything. That's the point of relationship. That's the point of being included. But he's beckoning us and he's calling us and he's saying, come on, my kids. You can do this. You do this with me for the sake of this world that I so, so love. Okay. So what does this mean? What does it mean for our worship and for our hearts? Well, firstly, and this is a kind of classic worship thing, we need to constantly check our hearts, especially when we come to something like this or to focus or a weekend away. When we come in gathered worship, let's check our hearts and just see, you know, what are we worshiping? Andrew Croft, who, uh, who leads Soul Survivor Ministries, Mike Pilavacci, um, says something kind of really clear but really deep. It says, every human being is a worshiper. And when we stop worshiping God, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. And there's a subtle shift that the devil loves to play with, where we move beyond truly worshiping God into worshiping anything. So we need to consider, check our hearts, what are we worshiping? And what are we coming to gathered worship for? I absolutely love the way that we worship. I've been brought up in charismatic spirituality. I think it's God-ordained, the intimacy that comes as we come before the Lord in song, the way the Lord meets us, absolutely. I believe it's biblical and theological, and it is from the Father's heart. But there's something, as with everything in charismatic worship, the danger zone is that we can become kind of introspective sometimes. And it can become a little bit more about me and my felt needs and my desires than about the heart of the Father and the world outside these four walls. Um, David Roos goes on to say something which really hit me hard. He says, actually, worship is not an escape. It is a perspective. And I've certainly had those moments where I've come to gathered worship and I've used it and wanted it to be an escape from reality. And it isn't. Worship is not an escape. It is a perspective. And it is the perspective of God, the king above all kings. It's his perspective of justice and righteousness, lifting our eyes to receive God's heart for God's world. And so we might need to reconsider what worship looks like, to know that this gathered church thing is absolutely worship, but also to know that our Tuesday afternoons and our Friday mornings are just as much worship. Here's a quote. We long for acts of power, and yet God may be revealing himself for a simple act of kindness. We long for a display of glory that is all lights and glitz that rock the room, and yet God may be revealing himself through a compassionate embracing of the poor. We long for an expression of worship that blows us away in an overwhelming display of God's presence. And yet God 
may be revealing himself by challenging the injustice around us and caring for those it has abused. True worship sends us beyond this gathered event to the world outside. The most used word for um, worship in the Greek in the New Testament is latire, and it literally means to serve, to serve. That's what we're doing in worship. We are serving the heart of God by serving other people, by serving his world that he loves. And actually, that's what this series is about, that we're called in to service. And so we worship God just as much. In fact, I would argue a little bit more when we buy a sandwich for that homeless person than when we're here doing this, as much as this is very, very important. And we need to know that worship is all about his presence, but his presence for his world. So in some worship, we come and we adore the Lord and we long to meet him in spirit and truth and in power. And we cry as Habakkuk, one of the prophets cried, Lord, I've heard of your fame, heard of your deeds in our day, in our time, renew them. But we mustn't stop in the cry or even in the encounter. We must allow his presence to change us. Because to invite God's presence is to invite the king, is to invite the king to have his way, to establish his kingdom rule where justice and righteousness roll like a mighty river. It's wonderful, but it's not always comfortable. When I was thinking about this, I, I suddenly remembered um, the story of Soul Survivor. I guess most of you know Soul Survivor Ministries and um, may have been to some of their festivals down in Shepton Mallet. And Soul Survivor, if they're known for nothing else, they're known for their worship. And they just, you spend hours and hours there pouring your heart out to God. But what is going on at the heart of Soul Survivor is also, also sorry, uh, social justice. They've got soul action. They've got their social justice projects. They're always, always saying to the kids and young people that gather around them, get out there. Get out there. And somehow in that, the Lord blesses their worship. And his presence is manifest in that place in quite extraordinary ways. Bethel Church is similar. And a lot of the songs that we sing are from Bethel. Extraordinary kind of anointing in terms of worship. But the thing that struck me most, I went out to, to Bethel for a week to visit some friends, and the thing that struck me most there was that actually there was a church whose heart was broken for the poor. And so they gathered and gathered and they worshiped God and they spent themselves in song. But there they were on the Tuesday afternoon in a kind of council flat type thing. Um, I don't know what the Americanism is with a man who, you know, is on the dole, praying for him and praying for healing. It was all about justice at the heart of it. Where there is no justice, there is no worship. But where there is justice, there is absolute worship. And it's his presence, and it changes everything. And it allows that we become repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. It allows that we step into that Isaiah 58 vision. So let's scale it right down to 2018 now. And um, I'm coming into land and then we're going to wait on the Lord and pray for a few people. So what are we doing here at St. D's in 2018? We really believe 
in this message. We believe, me and Tim, the leadership team, this is what the Lord is stirring us to. And so our four priorities are the bedrock of that. Number one is prayer. Because prayer changes things. We can only do this through prayer. And when we spend ourselves in prayer, for the last and least and the lost, things change. Discipleship. We know that to do this, we need to be well-discipled people. We need to know our God. We need to understand our God. We need to hear from him. Church unity and friendships. As an individual, the task can look impossible. It can be totally overwhelming. But actually, as a community of believers, it's completely achievable. If we do this together, we can do it. And fourthly, engaging with our local community. That's our mandate. Our Isaiah 58 mandate is Parsons Green and beyond and the places that we find ourselves in. And so what, what is our personal response? Firstly, I think it's think. I can't say my THs. Think. Um, what does our worship look like? How do we conceive of worship? What are we saying as we leave our gathering? Are we saying, oh, I really enjoyed that talk, or the worship was really good tonight? Or are we saying, God really spoke to me tonight? I feel really inspired to do X, Y, Z. I feel really broken for this. I'm going to do that. Secondly, look. It'll take us 30 seconds to leave this church building and see someone in need. Let's look at what is around us and allow God to stir us to break our hearts. I'm in no way perfect in this area, but I just decided a few years ago that the least I could do was um, every time I saw a homeless person, even if I didn't have time to go and buy them a cup of coffee or something like that, to just smile and acknowledge them and look them in the eye and know that they're a son and daughter of the king, that they are created in the image of God just as I am and they are as equal before God and in who they are as me. Just an acknowledgement. That's a tiny little thing that I can do, we can all do. And then as we go a bit wider, we look at our individual lives. Who's around us who's in need? Who's around us who's different to us? Who can we connect with? And then ask, we've been using this phrase, unlikely friendships, unlikely friendships over this series. To find someone who's really different to us. Because actually in befriending those who are different to us, as Max was saying earlier about um, the all together service, we're more church and we're more who we're made to be and we're more new creation, we're more revelation when we're in the company of people who are different to us. The kingdom of God is not homogenous. It's heterogeneous, it's full of diversity. So go and find an unlikely friend. And if that feels a bit difficult, just ask God for an in. He's a God of supernatural healing. He's a God who raised Jesus from the dead. He's a God who calls each and every one of us by name. He'll help you find someone, I firmly believe that. And then do and dream. So do, um, just up there, it's all the various things we do as a church at the moment. I know lots of you are already involved in some of them. If you're not, jump in and pop me an email. If, um, these are all the various people, are sort of the reps for them. Um, so drop me an email if you need their contact details. Jason, I didn't just want to whack your email address up there, so there you go. Um, do. 
And finally, before we pray and wait on the Lord, dream. Dream before the Lord. How do we do this? Well, let's ask the Lord. He's got far better answers than me or Tim. And let's ask the Lord how we do this without burnout, really aware that we're busy people. This isn't about burning ourselves out, but there will be space and time for this if we listen to the Lord. And finally, let's not have a knee-jerk reaction. Actually, let's let this message settle tonight and over coming weeks. And uh, me and Tim would love to invite anyone who just knows that this message is stirring them and they're in to uh, come have a lunch with us on May the 20th. It's a Sunday um, afternoon. So just pop that in your diary. Just let this thing settle over these next few weeks and then we'll gather together and we'll see what the Lord is saying. And if the weather holds good, it'll be a barbecue in the Vicarage Gardens. Okay, everyone. Um, let's stand, if that's all right. We're going to wait on the Lord in the quiet for a bit. Um, now we're going to see what he wants to do.